it is like, it's not malpractice, but it's certainly wrong, I think, to put an athlete in a cast, if you know, they're going to be so weak and so stiff, and they have their neuromuscular, you know, connections all disrupted, so much so that they will never get them back, and they will never run as fast again, ever. That is wrong. Because, you know, there's this whole like Hippocratic oath, right? First thing is do no harm. Well, if you take a runner, and you screw them up with your treatment, in a way that they can't run, I call that harm. So here's the question, how do runners like us remain active, get stronger, and heal from injuries without being told to stop running and create a healthy life for ourselves so we can continue to hit PRs well into our 40s and 50s? This is the question, and this podcast is the answer. My name is Dr. Dwayne Scotty, physical therapist, running coach, and creator of Spark Physical Therapy, where we help active adults be able to run without aches and pains so you can feel good about yourself again. Welcome to the Healthy Runner Podcast. All right, welcome and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Healthy Runner Podcast. And it's Monday, therefore we are adding a Monday Night Spark to your week. We are live within the Healthy Runner Facebook group with fellow podcaster and a true expert in the field of running and all things the foot and ankle we have Dr. Christopher Segler from the Doc on the Run podcast with us today. Welcome, Dr. Segler. Hey, thanks for having me. Really grateful to be here. Glad you're having me on your show. I love your show. So I uh, really think this is going to be a fun discussion today. Oh, yes. I am looking forward to this. So tonight, guys, I want to know, have you ever been to a medical professional for an injury and you are told to just stop running? Have you had to give up running because you were struggling with pain? Were you starting to think to yourself, is this just par for the course, right? That running is going to cause pain. So in this episode, Dr. Segler is going to share with us why runners like you should be treated differently. We're going to cover why standards of care that medical practitioners are taught may differ for you as a runner. We're going to be talking about why does plantar fasciitis go so wrong with runners? Think you have a metatarsal fracture? We will cover when runners can run with a stress fracture. We will also get into how reliable x-rays and MRIs are in helping injured runners decide when to run. Lastly, Dr. Segler is going to address what are the biggest mistakes injured runners make in the recovery process. So Dr. Segler, I'm sure you are a big fan of a nice little dynamic warm-up before you go out for your runs. So we're going to start with one right now. Tell us where are you from and what do you do? Yeah, thanks. Listen, thanks for having me here today. I mean, I uh, well, originally I'm from uh, uh, ten Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee specifically, uh, then went to college in Texas and then came to San Francisco for medical school. Uh, I'm still here now. I left for a little while to do residency at the University of Utah for my foot and ankle surgery residency, but I've kind of been all over, but um, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area now. Uh, and uh, what I do is that I try to do a couple of things. One of those is that I try to teach physicians at medical conferences how to treat runners differently. So uh, several times a year, like uh, just last weekend, actually, I was lecturing at a conference that was supposed to be in Las Vegas. Um, the largest conference of uh, foot and ankle surgeons that the International Foot and Ankle Foundation puts on. And uh, in a few more weeks of lecturing at online again, unfortunately, that one was supposed to be in Hawaii. So that would have been a lot of fun if we were allowed to be there. But 
no such luck. So uh, conferences this year were, uh, let's see, Lake Tahoe, Seattle, Scotland, Sonoma, uh, Las Vegas, and Hawaii. So uh, I lecture a lot. I lecture all around the world. I've been to uh, lots of different interesting places to give talks. But the whole mission that I have that I think I'm really cut out for is to, you know, help runners understand that the, the ways that we're taught as physicians to treat problems do not necessarily work for runners and athletes. And so that's what I do at conferences. So I'm always lecturing on specific things about runners, about athletes, about conditions relevant to them. Uh, and then of course, in my practice, I do, that's exactly what I do. So mostly what I do is second opinions, uh, consultations online, telemedicine consults for runners who are confused about what's going on, or frankly, they don't believe that the treatment that they have been assigned as a part of their treatment plan is really working, or it seems inappropriate for them because they, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, just like you asked the question, I mean, this is a good question. You know, have you ever been told to not run? Well, I mean, I was, I, you know, I actually, before I went to medical school, I raced motorcycles professionally. And I had a doctor actually tell me that uh, if my knee only dislocated when I was on motorcycles, I should just stop riding motorcycles. And I was racing professionally. So that wasn't a good answer for me. So, I mean, I understand this, you know, when a doctor says just stop running, it's ridiculous because, you know, the way that I see it, when I tell doctors, I say, look, you know, um, runners don't come to you and they do not come to see you for you to tell them to stop running. They do not come to see you because they're worried that they have a stress fracture. They come to see you because they have pain in their foot that might be a stress fracture that's screwing up their ability to run and they want to run. So telling them to not run is like, doesn't make any sense, but that's what, you know, that's what they do. And so, you know, that's really my thing is I uh, just work with athletes to help them figure out how to optimize the recovery and return to running process so they don't get re-injured and in many cases can dramatically compress their timeline or can actually complete an event while they're still injured. So that's really my sort of area of hyper specialization, I guess you'd call it. Well, first off, I just need to say thank you for educating the medical community because I know this is something that is huge within our medical profession and so many patients that I see, I just got off the phone with two people just before we hopped on and same thing, they were told to not run and they basically rested, didn't run for six months, both of them, and their pain yeah, did right. not go away. <laughs> yes, yeah, so so, six, six months is a long time. I mean, really, right? So, uh, and, and it's, it is interesting, right? When you think about that and you think about all of the stuff that happens and, uh, you know, I just, like one of the lectures I just gave that was supposed to be in Las Vegas was on what happens. You know, it was specifically about how the standard of care, you know, doesn't work for athletes, but specifically about the things that happen to runners that affect them in a really negative way that frankly doesn't really affect people who are not athletic, you know, if you get weak and stiff and your idea of activity is watching football on TV, so what? I mean, really, right? Like, I mean, it sounds flippant, but it's true. And so, you know, it's like doctors just have to understand that, you know, the doctor's job really, because we kind of have a little backwards. We're thought we're supposed to fix problems. We're supposed to treat specific problems. We're supposed to make something look better on an x-ray, but we're not. We're supposed to help, you know, our patients achieve whatever goals they have. But that gets lost in the modern medicine, you know, model of like, just see more patients, have assistants do everything, have assistants explain everything. It just doesn't frankly work that well for athletes, you know, and I think athletes should be treated differently, frankly. 
Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Um, amen. And this is why guys, I, I brought Dr. Segler on for you today. So just so you know, I started listening to your podcast, the doc on the run podcast about two years ago, I had just opened up my practice for, I've had it for about a year at that point. And I started listening to your episodes and I was, I was really, really happy. I found your podcast because of your mindset and the fact that you are a runner, you're a medical practitioner. And honestly, I was already listening to a lot of PT specific podcasts, a lot of mm -hmm. clinical based podcasts, and I kind of excelled in the clinical route. And then I went the PhD academic route. And once I started listening to you, I was like, wow, this guy gets it and he can communicate it to the general public. And that was kind of my goal with starting my practice was to be able to impact my community in a different way. And so you honestly have been such an inspiration for me and honestly gave me the courage to actually start my own podcast. So I need to honestly thank you um, because you probably don't realize the impact that you've had on others and other medical practitioners like myself to actually get outside of the traditional you know, medical system box and be able to kind of reach our communities in a different way. And podcasting is definitely one of those ways. So I thank you very much. Oh yeah, no, listen, I mean, it's, of course it's my pleasure. And, you know, I've listened to your podcast. I mean, I think you really have a strong message and it really is useful information presented in a way that really is of use. It's, you know, it's interesting, like when we uh, hear some podcasts, I mean, maybe, you know, I guess every podcast is useful for somebody at some specific time, but some of it, you know, it's just like really high level, uh, you know, science that doesn't have any direct application. And for, I mean, and I right. get this, I have to, you know, I moderate sessions at some of these me medical conferences. I'm on the board of a medical advisors for one of these groups. And, you know, and so I listen to some lectures and they'll have a guest, you know, endocrinologist or something. And I'm like, if I didn't have a standing desk, I'd fall asleep. And so, and when I think like, well, what if that guy tries to explain this to his patients? Like, does he speak this way to his patients? You know, will they get that? Well, cause I don't get it. I'm a doctor and I don't understand half of what he's saying, you know, and, you know, but you have a really, you know, solid message. And obviously you've had your own stories that help people understand that, you know, you've been in those situations where you're trying to run, you're trying to get back to activity. And, um, and it's really crucial that uh, you can relate, I think, to your patients and your podcast certainly does that. So, um, you know, I'm glad you're doing it. I think you're doing a fantastic job. No, well, you don't understand how much that means to me. So, Dr. Segler, you talked about how you present this information at conferences and really teaching doctors how to speak treat runners. Um, why do you, I guess the question is, why did you initially go down this route? Why do you like to work with runners? Like, obviously you're a runner yourself. You're a well-accomplished runner, um, 15 time, um, Ironman, right. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. 15. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's nuts. Uh, for someone that's run only one full marathon, um, I envy you, um, for sure. But why do you like to work, uh, with the running community? You know, I mean, the thing is, is that, uh, what it really is to me is that it's a very definitive endpoint, you know, and, and I, frankly, like I'll have patients that call me once in a while and they'll say, well, you know, I have this pain and it's not really a specific thing, but it's just, my feet are kind of achy when I do this thing and it's been kind of getting worse, but I just want to feel better. And I just say, I'm not the guy for you. I cannot help you. And you, they're usually very confused, but when somebody calls me up and they say, okay, 
I got a stress fracture. I'm signed up for Ironman Louisville. It's in four weeks. I've been training for a year and I want to do this race and I want to not make my foot worse, but I want to do the race. I want to finish that simple. You know, when somebody says, uh, well, I have, you know, a, a perineal tendon issue, but I qualified for Boston and the race is on this date and I still want to do the race and I want to do it in this time that gives me a solid target. So I like really well-defined targets, you know, and, uh, and that's part of it. So uh, to me, it's the same as training for a race. You know, I, um, I had one Ironman race where I was going to do, had a goal of 12 hours, you know, relatively hard course when I was first doing them. And, uh, and it was, I think 11, 11 57, right. And then a few months later, I decided to see if I could go under 11 hours. It was 10 59 07, you know, and there's, there's something to that, right. About like having people who, who pick very, very specific goals. I think they achieve them a lot easier. And so truthfully, like as a physician, the best thing is to see somebody improve to actually accomplish their goal and know that they succeeded. So, you know, even when I take somebody on as a client who I work with like daily for a month, they're not that many people I do that with, but I do that with some people, but I will not do it unless they, I can say, what is it that you will define as success? And I don't really care if it's like, I want to run three miles at 10 minute miles, five days a week. And I say, okay, well, that's when we're going to say we achieved our goal, right? If somebody says, I want to, you know, start running again, and I want to be able to run 10 miles without pain. Okay. That's a goal. But if somebody just says, I don't know, I just want to get back to running. And I want to feel better. That's not a goal any more than I want to do a marathon sometime. Well, sometime is probably not ever going to happen. You know, if you sign up, you're probably really likely to train. If you have a specific deadline and a specific goal, you know, and that's the thing is runners are built for that. I mean, that's all we do. Right. And sometimes to a fault, but you know, that's, I think the best part about working with runners and second best part though, is that runners feel things more, you know, we have better somatic awareness. Runners are used to feeling like the difference between a four foot strike and a rear foot strike. We know when we go out and run and our run feels terrible because our form sucks because we're, you know, having a bad day. Uh, and we can take those exact same things and use them in, you know, formulating the, the sort of treatment process and the return to running process, because at least runners are aware of those things. And they know very specifically about how much pain, where the pain is, what made the pain happen. And truthfully, that makes my job easier. So those are a couple of the main reasons I really like working with runners. Right. Absolutely. I agree on all those points. Then even being able to, I'm sure I, I may see, you know, my patients a little bit more frequently um, than you perhaps, or maybe more sessions, but even just right. Being around the people that you love being around, right. These yeah. are the people that, you know, you're meeting up with at races when we are doing in-person races and mm -hmm. talking, you know, shop about sneakers and nutrition. And, you know, for me, it, it's, it's a matter of really, it isn't work anymore because you're surrounded by, you know, the people that you have a passion for, and it's something that you're passionate about. Obviously that's going to come through and you're going to really want to help them, um, mm -hmm. achieve their goals, like you said, how they have those defined goals. So yeah. how does the uh, standard of care differ for runners? Well, this is, oh, so this is a question for your audience. So you got all these people on there right now on the live, right? Yeah. So the question I would ask them is for everybody listening right now, have you ever been in a doctor's waiting room and you have a running injury and you look around the room and the people do not look like you? You know, there's like an old lady over there with a walker. There's somebody over there that's like morbidly obese that has oxygen tank on, you know, they've got a nasal cannula thing. They're breathing oxygen. You hear this, pts, 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 
I mean, they're not like you, right? So that you think about this for a second. I mean, this has happened to all of us. And so the the interesting thing is like, for uh, for example, one of the lectures on stress fractures, I basically started out, this is a conference, hundreds of doctors. And I put up a, the first slide was a foot. It was an x-ray and it was very obviously a fourth metatarsal stress fracture. And I said, okay, what is that? And somebody, you know, raised their hand, uh, stress fracture. Okay, well, what, what kind of stress fractures? Fourth metatarsal stress fracture at the surgical neck. Right, okay. Uh, what's the treatment? Uh, four weeks in a fracture walking boot. Okay, anybody disagree? Crickets, not a word, right? Okay, uh, you know, we'll take that as agreement since nobody says anything. The next slide is another foot. It's a stress fracture. It's a fourth metatarsal stress fracture. And it's obviously a different foot with the same kind of stress fracture. What is that? Stress fracture. What's the treatment? Four weeks in boot. Okay. So everyone here agrees that the right way to treat this is a fracture walking boot for four weeks. Do we agree? Any other ideas? Okay. And then the next slide is the two patients. One of them is a 32-year-old ultra marathoner who got her very first stress fracture ever, her first injury actually, doing a 100-mile trail race. The other one is a 74-year-old diabetic patient who weighs 400 pounds if he weighs an ounce. He's got peripheral vascular disease, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, um, lymphedema, uh, kidney failure. He's on dialysis. He has like every possible bad medical problem that could prevent healing. I'm like, okay, is there anybody here that believes that they're going to take uh, the same amount of time to heal? In fact, is there anybody believes it really take her four weeks to heal? Is there anybody believes that even if we like put this guy in the hospital and chained him to the bed that he could heal in four weeks, there's no way. So it's wrong for both of them. But a second ago, you know, everybody agreed on the standard of care, you know, the standard of care, basically for the, you know, people who are watching that uh, aren't doctors, it's a really simple thing. And I actually gave a whole lecture on the standard of care, where it comes from, all this stuff. And basically, it's more or less a simple way to think about it is what any doctor in a given community with a given level of training would do for a given condition. And so since we're all foot and ankle surgeons who are all similarly trained uh, sitting in this conference, we can say, okay, well, this is the standard of care. Everybody in this room agrees four weeks in a boot is right. And it's the standard of care, but it's wrong for a runner. And so this is, if you think about that, it makes it really simple. So when you go and you sit in the room and you're sitting in the waiting room and you see somebody with a walker and somebody who's, you know, uh, obviously uh, completely out of shape and probably very, very, very sick, to think that they're going to heal at the same rate with you just because they have the same condition of you is completely and totally absurd. And that's really why the standard of care just doesn't work. The other thing is that these treatments that are standard, that are within the standard of care, like putting you in a, a cast and crutches when you have an Achilles tendon injury, uh, you know, a fracture walking boot when you have a stress fracture, that those timelines are well-defined and they're conservative, meaning that they're long enough to probably heal the problem, meaning the Achilles tendon injury or the stress fracture. But we also know that you get serious damage from being immobilized and non-weight bearing for any period of time. And it's exponentially worse the longer it goes. So I have actually argued at conferences that it's like, it's not exactly malpractice, but it certainly is the wrong thing to do to take someone and put them in a cast or a fracture walking boot. If you know they're going to get so much osteopenia or weakness in the bones from being immobilized that they're going to be more at risk of getting other fractures later. 
it is like, it's not malpractice, but it's certainly wrong, I think, to put an athlete in a cast, if you know, they're going to be so weak and so stiff, and they have their neuromuscular, you know, connections all disrupted, so much so that they will never get them back, and they will never run as fast again, ever. That is wrong. Because, you know, there's this whole like Hippocratic oath, right? First thing is do no harm. Well, if you take a runner, and you screw them up with your treatment, in a way that they can't run, I call that harm. You know, it's not malpractice, but it is definitely wrong. That's what I really think about the standard of care with runners. Wow, such a great, great point there. And Tanya says, so correct with the standard of care. Once I told my podiatrist I was a runner, care plan changed. So that's good. It Tanya. should. Well, this is the impo- this is another important point, right? Is that you have to remember your doctor is supposed to be on your team. Your doctor really doesn't want you to do poorly. And what I have found is that a lot of times the doctors don't know what it is that you want to achieve. And I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I'll tell you, there was a a really good friend of mine, a guy I would let operate on my kids, one of my colleagues. I know him very, very well. Um, He called me one time. He said, hey, can you see this lady for a second opinion? I saw her. He had put an implant in her big toe joint. Well, that's a pretty normal thing to do when you have really bad arthritis in your big toe joint. Problem was, is that she was, she, he said that when he talked to her, she said she liked to dance and he was thinking, okay, whatever, you know, maybe, I don't know, line dancing at a country bar. You know, he, he didn't really inquire. This is a good example. It's not a runner, but it's a very good example because this guy, again, he's a very smart guy. I would let him operate on my kids and I looked at this woman and the, the implant was completely dislodged. She completely destroyed the bone. And I was like, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I, I'm a competitive uh, uh, salsa dancer. And she danced in four inch heels, like five hours a day, every day. And I called him and I was like, man, what in the world were you thinking? And he just said, Hey man, I just like, I didn't realize, you know, I wouldn't have done that if I realized And I think, you know, truthfully, a lot of the doctors to their, in their defense, if we don't tell them, Hey, look, I don't really care about what it looks like on the x-ray. I don't really care what you do for most people. I don't really care about, you know, this, this injury per se, I care about running and you, you have to do that though. You have to stop them and you have to tell them and doctors are busy. They're not really looking to try to discover what it is that's of interest to you. And I've had it myself. I even after an Ironman race, I uh, uh, was between races, but I had basically, I inhaled some Gatorade uh, during the race. I was drinking and I hit a bump, you know, I was in my aero bars and, um, and I basically got more or less like aspiration pneumonia. So I actually uh, was very sick after the race. Uh, I went to see a doctor and I wrote down, just finished Ironman, uh, whatever, you know, training for Ironman, whatever, in three months, I've got another race. And uh, I put all of this detail in my form. And then the doctor basically, with what was going on, he prescribed Cipro. And for those of you that aren't, you know, don't really know about this, there's a, there's an antibiotic called Cipro that can be very effective for that kind of uh, infection. But it's also has a black box warning with an association of tendon ruptures. And I basically looked at him when he gave me, he handed me a prescription for Cipro. And I was like, man, did you not read my intake information? I was like, if you, if I take this and I rub from my Achilles, like this is a slam dunk lawsuit. I mean, you won't even have to put on a suit. You're just going to have to send a check in, you know? <laughs> and he was like, oh, we're very busy today. And I was, I just was like, you gotta, that's not a reason to like give somebody a drug that is going to cause a, 
a predictable problem. And so again, this is not a bad guy. I don't think he was out to get me, but it feels that way when, we, when you know, as runners, our real genuine concerns get ignored. Um, but I have to, like, fortunately for me, I knew that would be a problem, but I had to stop him and say, look, man, I'm doing, I, I want, I'm trying to qualify for Ironman Hawaii. Like, I don't actually care about the whole pneumonia thing. It's just that it's impeding my training. And so you're gonna have to give me something else that is not gonna put me at risk of getting an Achilles tendon injury that will definitely kill my chances of making it to Hawaii. So, you know, it's really important for everybody listening. I think that when you get an injury and you talk to your doctor, you have to go in, you know, with an approach of like, look, these are my top concerns. Number one, I'm a runner and I can't run because my foot hurts. You know, that's number one, not, I, you know, somebody told me I have a stress fracture. I think I have a stress fracture because they immediately lock on to, okay, we're gonna fix the stress fracture. Here's your boot, bye. You know, and that's not what is really most helpful for most of us. Wow. Some great, great points. Um, I love the clinical relevance and really the real person relevance. So I think many of you probably have been there before. We're going to get into, we're going to switch gears a little bit into a new topic. If anyone here has had heel pain before, just type in heel pain into the comment box. Um, I know I have, and I've talked to many runners recently who have had this. So I'm really interested to hear um, the answer to this question. But so the question that I have for you, Dr. Segler, is why does plantar fasciitis go so wrong in runners? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a couple of reasons. So I actually wrote a book called Runner's Heel Pain, Self-Diagnosis and Self-Treatment. The reason I, I did that was that during my first marathon, I signed up you know, to run with a pace group. And the second I started running and I told them what they did, these guys that were the pacers started asking me questions. And I literally answered questions about plantar fasciitis for 26 miles, you know? And so the thing is, it's very, very common. You know, if you look at the statistics of it, um, plantar fasciitis accounts for 40% of all visits to the podiatrists in the United States. So you're talking like almost half of all the visits to foot doctors, really. You know, it's, it's tremendously common. And so, first of all, it's very, very, you know, everybody's going to have it. If you talk to all your friends, somebody will have had it at some point. Now, you can get all different variations of it. The problem is that, number one, it doesn't really bother you that much. And so most runners I see, they will have had it for many weeks, sometimes months before they really seek treatment because they don't perceive it as a problem. You know, it hurts when you step out of bed. But then, you know, you start your day and it doesn't really bug you that much. You even go for a run. It doesn't really hurt while you're running. It just hurts kind of maybe later that day or the next morning, a little more or something. But it's not like uh, some of these other things like stress fractures that are killing you as you're running. And, and really, you know, they don't, it doesn't stop you and make you turn around and like walk to the car or something. So the first thing is that, that we tend to ignore it. Uh, and then it starts to get worse. And, and the other thing is that I've heard this over and over and over that doctors say, oh, it's self-limiting. Well, it's really not. You know, I mean, I suppose heart disease is self-limiting too. If you ignore it long enough, you'll die, you know? I mean, so if you ignore plantar fasciitis long enough, we know that you will develop a thing called fasciosis where it gets thicker and weaker and then eventually you get, get little partial ruptures, but that's not really a treatment. Um, that's not a good thing. And so, you know, I think what happens more than anything else is that first of all, runners ignore it and then they develop either tendinosis or, or fasciosis and, and get partial ruptures that they then continue to treat like plantar fasciitis or they have a different condition altogether. 
Um, even yesterday, there was a doctor that called me about a patient who she said, oh, she has plantar fasciitis, but she's not getting better. I want to refer her to you. And, you know, and this is on Sunday, right? And I just said, well, look, and she told me the story. I said, well, based on your story, I don't think she has plantar fasciitis. I think she has bursitis. And I don't really think she has a fascia issue at all. So if you give her the stretches and stuff, she's not going to get better. So it, you know, if she stops doing activity, it'll feel better because she stopped doing activity, but you need to treat it differently. And so, you know, there are really only a few conditions there, but almost everybody I see, they have one of those other conditions. I mean, if you have plantar fasciitis and you treat it the right way, it'll get better. What I see is that runners, they actually have been told that it's plantar fasciitis or they believe it's plantar fasciitis and it's not getting better. And I have had a handful of runners that have literally gotten like, emotionally upset when I, you know, ask them about what happened. We saw the doctor and they'll say, the doctor told me I was lying to him. The doctor said that you have plantar fasciitis. And if you're not better, you're just not following my instructions, but you're one of those runners. So you're probably still running like 10 miles a day. And they, they actually get really upset because they've been falsely accused of not following the directions. And in my experience, runners are really, really, really good at following directions. I mean, that's what we do. We create a plan. We follow the plan. We right. don't wing it every day and we don't just ignore the plan and, oh, it says I'm going to do two miles today, but I'll go run 30. I mean, we don't do that, you know? So uh, I think that's the thing is that, that runners start getting problems and they think it's a really simple thing like plantar fasciitis, but it's one of these other conditions, um, you know, and they're just, they're continuing to treat it like plantar fasciitis because, you know, it, most of the time it is plantar fasciitis, but not always. So when I go to conferences, you know, I have a, a concierge kind of practice. I mean, I only do, you know, visits for athletes. I see uh, all my visits are like an hour, sometimes more. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a lot smaller group of patients than what I did when I had a typical normal practice. So, uh, and I go to conferences and when I do a lecture on runner's heel pain, I will first thing I ask them who here saw plantar fat, most conferences start on Wednesday or Thursday, you know, so I'll say who here saw plantar fasciitis this week? every hand goes up and I'll say, okay, who here saw someone with a partial rupture of the plantar fascia this week? And there'll be like maybe one hand who saw a case of infracalcaneal bursitis this week, maybe one hand, sometimes none. I'm like, okay, so time out. So I saw basically the number of patients I saw this week is probably what all of you saw before lunch on Monday. So how is it possible that I saw all of these things, but nobody else had hundreds of doctors saw that? It's not possible statistically. So either I'm some kind of genius or only people with those conditions come to me, or you guys have to be missing it sometimes, you know? And, and so I think it's that you've got to really think about that. So, you know, no matter what, if you have heel pain and you think it's plantar fasciitis, but it's not getting better, there's only two possibilities. Either you have the wrong diagnosis or you're doing the wrong stuff. That's it. There are no other possibilities. So if you're not getting better, then you have to get a second opinion from somebody. It doesn't really matter who, but you've got to try to have somebody else look at it a little bit differently. And truthfully, we're human beings, right? So if I say, oh, you have a partial rupture of the plantar fascia and you know, and then maybe you don't, it's hard for me to unthink that, you know, because I want to be right. And I want to think that I made the right decision the first time. And it's very difficult for any doctor to kind of undo their own diagnosis process, which is why it's valuable to get a second opinion from somebody else. Wow, that was great. So my take homes from that is that the reason it does go wrong with a lot of runners is sometimes it's not plantar fasciitis. So getting an accurate diagnosis is key. And 
I think you kind of alluded to the fact that unfortunately with today's um, day of medicine, with it being so fast paced and all medical practitioners being overworked, seeing too many patients, a lot of times they're forced to just do pattern recognition. They're a runner, mm -hmm. they have heel pain. It's gotta be plantar fasciitis. That's the most common heel pain cause there is. So let me just go with that because the chances are, the odds are it's going to be that. So let me sure. get them on this training plan and we're not differentially diagnosing as we should um, and really getting down to proper treatment as well. And that's mm -hmm. what I see a lot of runners go wrong with as well is that they have this chronic fasciosis kind of deal now where it's this chronic, you know, tendon fascia connection and they're focusing on the ice rest that kind of you know mode of treatment as opposed to actually progressively loading the tissues in order to build that resilience and strength in the tissues so yeah. i think you brought a lot of great points hopefully those um, who have plantar fasciitis who have some heel pain um, that is helpful for you and if you haven't been seeing results then you need to see a practitioner who actually take the time to be able to properly diagnose and get you on the proper treatment plan. All right. Yeah, so you now know, but also you can truthfully figure out some of this stuff yourself. I mean, that's what the book was about, right? It's like, um, you know, I mean, I did all, I made all these 3d animations. I hired an animator, you know, to actually come to my house every weekend for a year to build all these 3d animations, to put images wow. in there, to show you like what to push on and stuff. I mean, let's face it. Like this is a different time you know, even 30 years ago, if you had these questions, you just had to see a different doctor. But the fact is, I mean, I mean, how many YouTube videos do you have now? Right? I mean, <laughs> 200 I like, and something. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I have, I don't know, hundreds of videos and podcasts and uh, thousands, literally thousands of pages I've written on the website that explain these things. So I'm sure that between my website, between your, my website, your website, or the YouTube channels, all that stuff together, I guarantee you that the information people need to actually try to figure out what's the difference between a partial rupture of the plantar fascia and plantar fasciitis. And like, if you're not getting better, if you just start checking into those things, well, you may figure that out yourself. And most of the time when runners come to me, that's exactly what they've done. They've already tried to figure it out and they want me to actually help them confirm that. Is it really a partial rupture? Is it really this other thing? You know, but you've just got to take action, right? And uh, you got to do something. So it's really that simple though. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now let's talk about, let's switch gears a little bit to another injury that is common, especially in our long distance runners, um, is metatarsal stress fractures. Mm -hmm. So when can runners actually run on one of these? It's a good question. So you can run on a metatarsal stress fracture right now, as long as you can decrease the stress applied to the bone so that it doesn't exceed its capacity to absorb that force. That's a long way of saying, as long as you're not going to screw it up, you can run on it. Uh, there are lots of ways to do that, right? So the standard treatment, the, the cop-out treatment is just don't run, that beats them up. We have to remember, like, first of all, um, it is the stress that you got, you got a certain way, right? So if you run in the street facing traffic all of the time and you got a stress fracture, you know, maybe a fourth metatarsal stress fracture, for example, you know, which is the most common supposedly, and you got that and you're running in the street facing traffic where your foot pronates, the, med the medial, you know, inside three metatarsals move out of the way because your foot pronates forcibly because it's on a slope that loads the fourth more specifically. 
And so if you run in that same way, you're applying the exact same kind of force in the same way. If you're running on a treadmill in your garage because it's a COVID shutdown and you don't want to be around people, well, you're going to, if you run at the same pace on the treadmill the same way, you're going to predictably apply force in the same way. So if you can do some stuff to reduce the force to the metatarsal, you can probably run on it without making it worse. This is what I tell people all the time. Now, just sort of a, a real simple example of that. I was at a conference earlier this year, an in-person conference before all the shutdown happened. And I was giving a lecture and I was explaining how I take athletes who are going to do races, how I, you know, remove some of the pressure. We talk about strategies for removing some of the pressure specifically to that, you know, injured metatarsal bone, moving it to other metatarsals to spread out the forces and then how to test that and then how to let them try it out and then actually race with that. In the question and answer period, a doctor raised his hand and he said, how long have you been letting people run, you know, using that approach, how long have you been letting people do that? I said about 15 years. And he's, and I explained to them also, I have a video that shows how you run on it. You turn it from a, a stress response to a stress reaction, to a stress fracture, and then it breaks and moves out of position. And then we have to go in and do surgery. And we put the bone back in place and put a plate and some little screws in there. And, and I explained to him, I said, I explained this to runners that this is the worst case scenario, that if you do this, you could have to have surgery to put it back together. You don't want to do that. So you have to pay attention to it. And he said, well, how many times in 15 years of telling people to do it that way, how many times have runners that you've worked with broken it where you had to take them to the operating room and then, you know, put it back together in surgery? And I said, that's a great question. The answer is actually zero. I have never had one break. And I was like, so that does not mean that it's okay for every runner to run with a stress fracture. That's not what that's saying. But what it is, is that at least it does show that at least for 15 years, I've been successful at telling runners how to remove the pressure enough to decrease the force that they can continue to train and run and even race in some cases. And I've had some athletes actually get Ironman PRs and marathon PRs during that scenario. Now, again, most people hear that and they think, oh, well, that means that you can run faster with a stress fracture. No, it does not. It means that those people are almost certainly chronically severely overtrained. And when they really back off their activity right before a race and do a much longer taper than they would normally do because they got a stress fracture, that they actually do well because they are actually rested finally for a race. But it doesn't mean it's not risky. It doesn't mean it's a, a thing you should just try and see what happens. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, every, every injury is different. And this whole thing of like, how long does it take for it to heal? And I just gave a lecture on stress fractures. One study I put in there, the study actually said, I mean, actually, I can't, I can't, I would like to meet the person that actually had to type this into the, the paper. And it said, in our study, the range of recovery was anywhere from four to 52 weeks to return to sport. Okay, so, um, so a month to a year. I mean, come on, really? Like a month to a year? That's a real answer? Like, if you know, that's like saying, well, how long will it take for me to be able to retire? I don't know, somewhere between like four and 80 years, you know? <laughs> um, it's ridiculous. And so, you know, you have to realize that everything that you do affects the injury, particularly stress fractures. You know, if you have a, an automobile accident and you ask them, how long is it going to take to fix my car? It depends on how much damage there is. And it depends. Are you going to have like one guy working on it that's only there on Tuesday? Or are you going to have like five guys working on the car? What are you going to do that's going to change the course of recovery? Because the doctor giving you a timeline is not a treatment. The treatment is what you do in between those visits. I mean, you, you're a physical therapist, right? So 
you make people do things that they're supposed to do so they will recover faster. They don't, they don't get credit for showing up in your clinic, right? They get credit for doing things that actually changes the recovery process. And with metatarsal stress fractures, we think of it as a static thing about a, a waiting for a timeline and it's anything but that. And so if you take what you know from training, what you know from the process of getting more and more fit and building strength, and then you apply that to your recovery process, that's where the benefit comes in. So, I mean, I wrote a thing called the Runner's Rapid Recovery Journal that basically does that. And it's the same exercises I have done for a long time in a variety of different forms with athletes where I say, okay, look, what are you eating this week? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm not really training, so it doesn't matter. Really? Well, what's an overtraining injury? It's an exaggerated version of what you do in training intentionally. So this is just a bigger problem that you should be applying that process to. So if you're eating pizza and ice cream, you're not going to heal and recover as fast as if you're eating the same stuff you would eat when you're in training, you know, and it's uh, so that's what the whole runner's rapid recovery journal is. It's just to help people understand how to actually move faster through the recovery process by taking the stuff that they know from training that doctors will not talk about because they don't have time, but you already know it anyway. You're just not doing it right now. And if you do it, you will get better faster. That's the trick. Yeah, absolutely. With, I think really what you're alluding to is number one, pushing the right buttons and having active recovery that it's not you're injured and now you just stop and you rest and there's a predictable timeline that now you're magically healed and you're now six weeks out. So go ahead and try running again. And if it's painful, then stop. And we're going to wait another four weeks. And this is mm -hmm. something that I definitely uh, preach to my PT students, um, especially when you look at uh, some of the post-surgical, you know, timelines and everything is pretty much like time dependent. And I tell them, you know, when they're taking a patient through their post-surgical, you know, rehab, whether it's an ACL or an Achilles rupture, um, you know, it's not the timeline in when you advance to the next stage, it's going to be based upon the patient presentation, you know, and, and what they've been doing, like you've alluded to, it depends upon what they're doing during their recovery period. Like I know right. for me, actually, and I think you said, you know, you heard my story initially, I had a labral tear in my hip yeah. and I had a hip scope. And during that time period of my recovery, because I actually, I couldn't work because I was non-weight bearing because I did have microfracture surgery. Like literally I was rehabbing like a professional athlete. I swore I right. was a professional athlete. I was going to PT for two hours. And then I went to the gym for two, two and a half hours. So I was pretty much doing a whole day of rehab every single day because that was my job to get mm -hmm. back. And then that's when I started running. So it, it really depends guys. What Dr. Segler is talking about is when you have these injuries, it depends upon what you're doing during that recovery phase. And that is going to dictate how your outcomes are going to be and how quickly you will get back to doing the sport you love, which is running. Right. So thank it's, you. you know, it's also two outcomes, right? So the problem is, is that, you know, we as, as athletes have one outcome that's running, doing what we want to do at the pace that we want to do it. Right. And when you see a doctor, they have one outcome. How long does it take for you to heal a stress fracture? And the problem is, is you have this one slope of line that's like, this is you getting better, 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 you know, for how many weeks the doctor says it's going to be. Now that, that whole process can be dramatically shortened if you add stuff for extra credit. It's just that simple. 
You know, if you're doing additional things, that process alone can shorten. Now, the other line you don't want to think about is that as you're doing that and you're doing nothing, your fitness is going down, 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 right? You're getting weaker, stiffer, you know, one week of crutches and a fracture walking boot, you get a 17% reduction in the muscle diameter size on that lower extremity. If four weeks is 60%, you know, at, um, after a month of being in a cast, it takes 70% of the amount of torque to move your foot to the end range of dorsiflexion at your ankle. Uh, it's five times as much force. So then you're going to get more likely to get stress fractures and stuff later. All of that is happening. The longer it takes for you to get better, the more that trouble you get. And so these two things, you can change the slope of both of these lines in a way that actually gets you to the one thing that matters to you running, you know, but the doctors aren't even thinking about the other set of things. They're just thinking about, oh, well, you know, you do these things, this thing will heal. We'll take an x-ray. It'll be fine. But that's not true. You can change both of those things. So you can do more stuff like you always talk about with all the active recovery. It's all about actually doing something, not just to stay active so you're not crazy, but to actually fuel the healing process through that active recovery. And it, it changes both of those timelines simultaneously. Yeah. So I know you had mentioned x-rays. How reliable are imaging studies like x-rays and MRIs at kind of helping injured runners decide when to run? Horrible. So they're the worst thing. So, uh, I mean, they're what we rely on, you know, but if you think about it, like hundred years ago, you can get x-rays, you can get MRIs, you can get CTs, you don't go get an ultrasound. There was none of that, right? No bone scans. There was none of that, but people got better. So injured soldiers got better. People were in accidents on horses. They got better. Well, how is that possible? Right. Do you think the timeline was that much different because we had MRIs? So I actually just gave a lecture at a medical conference that was entitled um, clinical. What was it? Uh, yeah, clinical acumen versus medical imaging. You know, when to, when uh, something like I think the subtitle was something like how to make the call with early return to activity. Runners over and over and over, even when they book a consultation with me, a telemedicine visit, they're like, you know, well, can I get an MRI to see if it's okay for me to run? I'm like, that's the last thing you want to do. So in fact, in that lecture, I talk, I go through and I talk about all of the different ways that all these images fail and not just my opinion, but what's in the medical literature about how inaccurate they are, you know, like with uh, like a good example is perineal tendon injuries. If there's like a 20% uh, false rate with perineal tendons, like 15% of the time, it looks like there's a split in your tendon that's fake. It's a false positive. And I know doctors, extremely reputable doctors have taken people to the operating room because some runner got an MRI and they're like, oh yeah, it hurts. So, you know, oh yeah, you have a split. That's a surgical problem. We'll fix it on Thursday. They cut them open. There's nothing wrong with the tendon. That's wow. not a good thing. So this is a, and this is a common problem, right? So it's this way with x-rays, MRIs, and CTs. It's all of them, ultrasound. Um, they all are very, very, very poor predictors of when you can run. So if you just think about the simplest one, an x-ray, right? So you initially, you don't even see a stress fracture on an x-ray. Over time, you'll see changes that happen on the x-ray that indicate that you had a, a, a stress fracture that's in the process of healing, but that doesn't happen for a long time. And what we look for in terms of this thing called trabeculation, where you have these little wavy lines that are, you know, little channels of calcification across the fracture site that show that it's like actually healed. Well, it is healed for sure. And it is okay for you to run for sure on the day that you have that x-ray that shows that trabeculation. You can also be for sure that it did not happen that day. Maybe it was a week before, 
Maybe it was two weeks before. But when you think about that exponential decline in fitness and neuromuscular connections, all of it, why in the world would you want to wait until it actually shows up on an x-ray? That's crazy. What's happening is that every step along the way, the tissue is getting stronger. So the goal for you as an injured runner is to actually try to deliberately match the tissue strength at that time with an appropriate level of activity. But this is the opposite of what doctors and athletes do. We say, oh, my foot's broken. I can't do anything. I'm going to sit at home and watch Netflix and eat pizza. And then, you know, 10 pounds and six weeks later, uh, I'm going to go and run on it. Well, that then is your highest risk moment. You have lost all of your fitness. Your form sucks. You can't run like a normal person anymore. You're going to load things asymmetrically. And now you have all this additional weakness to try to run on an injured bone. Instead, you need to do the exact opposite of that. And so that all of these things like MRIs, they're completely unreliable. There's actually a couple of studies that, uh, that show that one of them was, a, uh, they took an MRI machine in an 18 wheeler. So if you've had an MRI uh, in an 18 wheeler, that's actually not that weird. Um, the MRIs are so expensive that many facilities now will do a contract with a company that brings it around and they park it in the parking lot. And you like walk up a couple of steps, you go in, you get your MRI. They do them on certain days. Um, and they took one of those machines. They followed a bunch of athletes on the trans Europe foot race, which goes all the way across Europe, like 2000 miles. And at certain stages along that race, they would do these MRIs and they would have inflammation in the bone, what we call, you know, um, medullary edema, intraosseous edema, cortical edema, a number of different things. But the radiologists read those as stress fractures and, it's not a stress fracture. That is a stress response. It's a completely normal thing. And there was another study on runners that looked at this in professional runners, and they showed this exact same thing where there's these phases as you cycle through your training, where you have inflammation within the bone, that's a normal response, but it looks abnormal on an MRI. And the problem is, is that when your doctor gets an MRI report and it says stress fracture, you know, intracortical edema, medullary edema, whatever, uh, they basically read as a stress fracture. They say, well, you have a stress fracture, idiot. You can't run. You know, your foot's broken. It's a stress fracture. Well, it's not. It's a normal thing. And, and it waxes and wanes. And that one study, fortunately, they actually, one of the conclusions was that this should not be used as a clinical indication to modify the athlete's uh, training regimen. And that is critical because doctors have always said, oh, you've got to stop running. And that is not true. Most of the time it is not true. But the flip side of that is that if you're hoping that you can get an MRI that shows you're all clear, man, that is the worst thing. That is not going to happen. It's going to be worse. So I actually tell doctors with stress fractures in particular, the only three times you should get an MRI is if it's the tibial stress fracture. And it, you know, you're not sure really if it's based on the hop test, if it's a stress fracture or shin splints, or um, if they, uh, if, if you have an x-ray and you get, um, there is actually a, a crack in the bone, you, it's a complete waste of time and money because you already know it's a stress fracture. But the other time, you know, to get a stress fracture on a runner is when you have a runner who will not listen, who keeps running who you know is going to run on it and they're going to break it. And so you get an MRI to convince them because it looks very bad, but that's not really a tool for diagnosis, you know? So I very rarely get MRIs uh, on runners uh, when I can, when I think they have a stress fracture, because I think you can tell clinically, I think most runners can actually tell on their own given some certain tests. And I think it's uh, a waste of time and money. And then it also does not give you a, a significant endpoint. You know, and that's really the issue is that you want to know, is it good or not? 
Can I run or not? And the MRI will actually lead you astray. Yeah, guys. So what Dr. Segler is saying is that these fancy, expensive uh, diagnostic tests that we have with technology, which can be beneficial, a lot of times does not change the course of your treatment. So it is not necessary or needed for you to get these. And I'm sure you get the same question I get is a lot of people will say, well, how can you see me if I don't get an MRI first? Or how are you going to diagnose me without an MRI? Right. And, you know, believe it or not, a lot of what, like 70, 80% of our diagnosis comes from our subjective exam, right? So our history. And exactly right you know, we can make those determinations on your care plan and your course of treatment without needing that MRI. And Dr. Segler is really just highlighting it, how unreliable these actually are. So, mm-hmm. and I think the public really isn't aware of that at all. So hopefully this is no. bringing that to light and that it doesn't really change the course of care. So what is the purpose? And, and I think you're really highlighting the fact that sometimes it's going to have a negative impact on your course of care, because if your Mm -hmm. physician is not up to speed with your activity as a runner, then he's going to make some clinical decisions based upon the imaging and not so much based upon the health of your tissues and the stresses that you're putting on your body. That's exactly right. And, you know, and I mean, again, it's like, if you see it, and it's not like I have some kind of magical ability or something. I don't, I'm not trying to pretend that I do when I talk to doctors about this. And this was the whole point with the talk. And when I gave this one talk on imaging versus clinical acumen, or just knowing what you're doing when you're looking at a patient, you know, I started, I actually, I, I was in that session. And so from the talks from the previous two days, I took examples of people that all the doctors in the audience is hundreds of doctors and they know these people are experts, right? They've been invited to lecture. They're very well respected. One of them was the previous president of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. So slide one is like, okay, she was the previous president of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. And she said that she made this mistake based on an MRI. This guy was the editor of the Journal of Foot and Ankle Surgery, one of the most respected people in our entire field. And he gave this example of how you get an MRI. It looks like an osteochondral lesion. You go to do surgery and it doesn't fix the problem. And it's, it, we're led astray by the MRI. And this other guy who you know talks about DEXA scans and you get people with recurrent stress fractures, you get a DEXA scan, DEXA scans normal. You look at their foot on an x-ray and you can tell it's osteopenia. You can look at it and you can see it. But the bone, you know, the DEXA scan is supposed to be this fancy test that tells us how strong our bones are. It's completely wrong. And so this is the thing is that all doctors, you know, can tell. I'm sure that you can look at a runner with a a pain in their foot. And if it's a stress fracture, you can tell, right? Like you've seen enough stress fractures, you know, you can tell you don't need an MRI for that. You don't need an x-ray for that. And the same thing is true when you look at, you know, you're tracking your pain, you're seeing what your symptoms are doing, you're seeing what it feels like when you try certain things, you can make a decision that is going to have you way ahead of imaging on when it's actually safe to return. Wow. You're dropping knowledge today. Last, I I know your time is very valuable. So I'm going to give you one more question here. Um, We can like honestly talk for hours. So we're going to have to have you on the show in the future because we can just keep going on and on. But I want to know what are the biggest mistakes injured runners make in the recovery process? You know, I've kind of talked about it a bit already, but the biggest mistake for sure is that we completely shift our personality and our approach when we get injured. And I know this, right? So I've been through it myself. And 
we go through this whole thing where we are, we think about for so long about achieving a specific goal, you know, training for hours at a time, you know, really focusing on a goal. And every day we wake up, we look at our training plan. I had, um, you know, my specific pace I had to do on my refrigerator. I had the exact speed that I needed to go on my stem on my bike, right? So when I do my long rides, I'm like 22.4 miles an hour. That's it. 22.4 miles an hour for the entire bike ride. That's it. You know, everything is measured, right? And then you get injured and it's such a blow that it actually really throws us back on our heels and we forget everything that we do that actually works. So over and over, I talk to athletes who are, they're, they're, they're not training. So what happens when you don't train? Like if I run, if I ride, if I, if I work out, I sleep better for sure. Not even debatable. If I go a few days without exercising, then I actually don't sleep very well. You cannot possibly heal if you're not sleeping. Simple as that. That is when it happens. It does not happen while you're watching TV. It does not happen while you're working. It happens when you're sleeping. And so all of this stuff that actually works, how we eat, how we sleep, the things we do for you know meditation or stress control, all of those things go out the window and athletes stop doing them. And again, this is what the Runner's Rapid Recovery Journal is about. It's to show you, not it's not like to give you some magical pill or some the one exercise that in three minutes is gonna make you get over your injury. It is how to actually figure out, okay, what do I know how to do that I'm not doing now? You know, that's really it. And uh, and and that's what we do wrong is that I see athletes, it's incredible that, that they will um, completely abandon their diet. They completely doing the things that they know they would do in the recovery process when they're training and they're not doing them while they're healing. That's the biggest mistake for sure. This, the other mistake, it's a smaller one, but it's just that sort of blind adherence to a specific timeline for a specific injury. You know, oh, it takes, you know, four weeks to do that, you know, heal this kind of injury, take six weeks to heal that kind of injury for who and for what, you know, for who and for how bad, I mean, they're just completely absurd, but we want something that seems like that, you know? And so, you know, what I would tell everybody watching this is like, if you think the doctor says it takes you six months to run again, well, does that make any more sense than saying it takes you six months to be able to run a marathon? I just don't think that's true. I think that depending upon how much you want to suffer, you could do it a lot sooner, you know, and if you don't train, you won't be able to do it in six months, at least not before the cutoff time, you know, the sag wagon will have to pick you up and it's true in recovery too, but we just always want to think there's a solid timeline that we can rely on when we can't because nobody has a crystal ball and, you know, we just forget to do the things that we actually already know how to do that we already have the power to do. That's the biggest mistake. Nice. Nice. And and guys, if you haven't checked out the Doc on the Run podcast, I just honestly have to give you a plug right now because especially if you like more short form podcast, um, Dr. Segler's podcast is if you're going for like a short run or you have a short commute, you can like pop in an episode and it's done. Like obviously the Healthy Runner podcast, we're doing more longer form kind of in-depth deep dive interviews. But if you want those short form um, podcast or like myself who I ran four this morning and I listened to three of your episodes. I just kind of put them in. I say, play next, play next. I set it up before I start running. So then it just constantly plays in my ear. Um, you guys have to check out um, his content. So what do we have for our healthy runner community? 
Yeah. So listen, for, I want to do something special for you guys. You know, I'm really grateful that you have me here and that everybody's on. I know it's not easy for everybody to get on a live uh, episode like this. Um, so basically what we have is something I haven't done before, actually. And uh, on the, you know, the, I've got the runner's rapid recovery journal, which is, I think it's 91 pages total, but it's a series of exercises that can really help you set a goal, not um, just like to run again, but a goal specific to your recovery that's going to get you there and how to work through those exercises. So what we've got is I created, uh, it's at uh, www.docontherun.com slash healthy runner, just for your audience. Uh, if they go there, there's a link where they can actually just get it for free. So it's $47, but everybody who's, uh, you know, one of the people in your group here who's on tonight, um, they can go there, they can get it, they'll get an instant download access uh, link, they can get it, take it, and, and then run with it, so to speak. Wow, that is awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. And I'm going to actually try and see if I can multitask here and drop that link in right now. And I think I successfully did that. So thank you so much for doing that for our community. Seriously, that means hey, a lot. And I know the uh, value is going to be there, guys. So definitely uh, check that out. Um, click that link. Uh, get your rapid recovery journal. Um, and those of you who really, if you guys are just jumping on here now, I'm just going to give a little quick recap of what Dr. Segler really talked about today. And a lot of what he talked about is like things that I like passionately believe in. So I love this and how runners should be treated differently and why you should be treated differently. Um, we talked about why is the standard of care different um, for runners. We talked about plantar fasciitis. Why does it go wrong uh, with certain runners? We got into metatarsal stress fractures. And then that kind of went into a little segue with imaging and how unreliable those are and why your clinical decisions really shouldn't be dictated by imaging for you as a runner. And then we really talked about the biggest uh, mistakes that runners make in that recovery process. So I hope this was helpful for you guys. I know I learned. I I continually learn each and every day, just like all of you. And so I learned a lot. So I thank you, Dr. Segler, honestly, for taking your time to educate us um, on all this tonight. Hey, listen, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And those of you who have found this talk helpful, please hit that like, hit the love button, show Dr. Segler some love here on Facebook. Um, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, this is one of those episodes that you are going to want to share with your running friends. Let's help them out. Stay healthy. That's what Dr. Segler is all about and sharing some great information. So go ahead and follow his Doc on the Run podcast as well. Um, and if you're watching this on the Spark Your Training YouTube channel, uh, thank you guys for watching. Don't forget, guys, every Monday night, 8 p.m., we go live within the Healthy Runner Facebook group. So keep us in mind in your schedule so you can get your running questions answered. And every Thursday, there's a new episode in the Healthy Runner podcast. So thanks again. And remember, stay active, stay healthy, and just keep running. Until next time. Hey, wait a minute. Just to let you guys know, much of what you heard on this episode is delivered live within our Healthy Runner free Facebook group. So head over to there to request to join our community in which you will have access to the video version of this episode and so many bonus features, including blog article references and YouTube video links, as well as me answering your specific running related questions. Also, we are closing in on 50 reviews on iTunes, which I am super pumped about given we're only six months into this podcast journey together. 
So to help me get there, the first thing you need to do is you have to subscribe to The Sucker, whether it is Apple iTunes that you're listening to this or whatever platform you are on. The next thing is make sure you leave a review. I love to hear what you have to say, and I read all of them, and it means a lot to me. The last thing, guys, is take a screenshot of whatever episode you're listening to and put it on your stories on Instagram and tag me. That's at SparkYourTraining. If you do this, I will repost it. So you'll get a bump, I'll get a bump, and most importantly, we will share this information with a lot more runners because that is the goal, guys. We want to get this information in front of as many runners as possible to help them be healthy and stay on the road doing what they love. So take a screenshot, share it on Instagram stories, and tag me in it. Let's try and get to 50 reviews on the podcast. Thanks for listening.